0: You're listening to the 1208 podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. All right, we're going to hop into our Bibles. And uh, take a little tour throughout a theme of hope here. In a rather intriguing way, this, doesn't, this particular passage doesn't get hit on a lot at church. And it's kind of, kind of strange just in general. That's part of the reason it doesn't get hit on much in church. Nobody really even fully knows what to do with some of these passages because they're so short, so succinct, and so strange. Uh, but I suppose our story begins back in the Garden of Eden. So, what you need to imagine is Eden as this place where God's presence dwells. It's a holy temple, okay? This is God's temple where His presence dwells. And He has created uh, these, these uh, human beings and put them here in the garden with Him to dwell there with them. So, what do you guys think? What's what's the point of these these humans, this man and woman who who live in this garden? Like what's the point of life? Why do they exist? Why did God put them here? Where do we go from this point of the story? What what are some of your thoughts? Beautiful. She's already on point. Yeah. We are God's image. What what else is that word image used of in the Bible? Anybody remember? False image. Yeah. A graven image. You heard of that before? An idol. It's the same word. Uh, Hebrew has a few different words for image, but you can have false images, false idols of God, and then you can have human beings who are the image of God. So God doesn't need a statue. God doesn't need an image because he's already made one. That's us. Images, idols throughout the Bible in ancient times, those were supposed to represent whatever deity was behind it. Uh, So those were supposed to look like whatever it was supposed to be looking like and demonstrate kind of in a physical way something about the gods, if you will. But God made you. And he called you his image. And so he made you in such a way to reflect him into the world. And you're not a statue. You're the real deal. You can move. You can breathe. You can talk. And so it's you are not to be worshipped, of course. You're not that kind of image. But you are supposed to be like an imprint, a reflection of who God is on the rest of the world. So like Marie was saying, you are the image of God here in God's space in his tabernacle which is usually where images are, in God's holy temple of Eden. There's the image of of, of, uh, of God right there in you. And then you are to be fruitful and multiply, right? That's the goal. Why? So that you keep creating new images of God that go out into the whole world and cultivate the whole world to look like Eden. Not just this one spot, but eventually, you're turning the rest of the world into this beautiful Garden of Eden as well. Is that not what Revelation's about at the end? All the way at the end. it's Garden of Eden takes over the entire world, right? Uh, paradise is found everywhere. God's presence is found everywhere. The entire planet becomes God's holy presence. So. With that being said, human beings are the image of God, living in the sacred space of God in the tabernacle. There is a word that we use of human beings that uh, sorry. There is a word we yeah, there's a word we use of human beings who uh, walk into sacred space and meet with the divine. Does anybody know what that word is? Or take a stab at it. What in the Bible, what is a job description? of somebody who... Yes, a priest, right? So, when we think of priest, what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind today? Catholic Church. In what way? Like, who's the priest? Yeah. The head of the local church, the pastor, if you will, if we're using semantics with a lot of different denominations. Um... And so a lot of times, what we get pre-stuck in our head when we think of it today, we think of certain called out people who are to lead uh, certain groups of churches, right? That's usually what we think of as priests. But that's not where the Bible starts. Who's the ones already in the, the divine area interceding and going up to God's presence? What was it? It's people. It's everybody, right? Well, Adam and Eve, at least for starters. But the idea is that they're going to have kids who will then also be in the divine presence. But of course, that's not where the story goes, right? Humanity messes up. We choose to sin. We leave. And uh, as we leave the Garden of Eden, we now have in some ways kind of stepped further away from our, our priestly side of who we are. Like, we want back in God's presence, we want back in sacred space. Images belong in sacred space, and that's where we want to be. But we no longer can. We're stuck on the outside. And the Bible tells us that God puts like this guardian angel, like at the the front gate of the temple of Eden. Like if you're going to try to come back in here, it's very clear from this angel and his sword. If the angel himself isn't the sword, it's kind of confusing. It's very clear from like this weaponry. Like I can't get close to sacred space anymore. Sin is in some way put up a boundary between me and God. And so that has to be dealt with. That has to be atoned for. But we're not without hope, because from the very beginning, what does God tell Eve? Anybody? Yeah, so there's there are curses on the land, there are curses on people. But on Eve, God looks at Eve and says, the woman is going to one day give birth to a descendant who will crush the serpent's head, who will crush Satan's head, who will crush uh, uh, crush this angelic being who's messed everything up. And so, though the world is falling apart, we at the same time are told that the world is going to one day have someone rise up and fix it someone who's going to be able to bring us back into the garden of eden someone who's going to be able to take us beyond that cherubim into that sacred space again now this is where the story gets weird okay so we just set the ground basics there's a strange story of a guy named melchizedek uh hands up if you've even heard of this guy okay so like four of you right so like (laughs) like i said not a very popular Bible story. uh, But if you want to learn about it, let's go ahead and open. I believe it's Genesis 15. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And King Mechizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God, most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies and into your hand. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. Okay, so we meet this guy named Melchizedek. Now, all of our focus at this point in the Bible has been on, on Abraham. He's the one who one day, Eve had lots of descendants, but Abraham within those descendants, now out of Abraham's line that one descendant who's going to make everything right, that we have hope for, is one day going to come about. Our focus has been on Abraham. As far as we know, there's Abraham under Yahweh, and then there are all the other nations under all the other false gods. And then in this strange story, as Robbie was just reading, Abraham runs into a king named Melchizedek, who is working in a priestly role who worships Yahweh. And we're like, what on earth is happening? Who is this guy? So I'm just curious, does anything stick out to you? as Robbie read that? I know it's a lot to process, plus Robbie got the fun names of Melchizedek and Shader Lamar and all these other things. Is there anything in that passage that just pops to you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you're wondering why... Oftentimes, even into today, people practice giving 10% of their uh, funds to churches. The idea goes all the way back to the priesthood. How did the priests of the Old Testament live? Well, it was because they didn't have any income, but when people brought sacrifices, uh, that kind of like 10% of their life, those sacrifices would then sustain the priest to keep on living. So you give a uh, uh, part of an animal... Part of that animal is reserved for the priest so that they can eat, things like that. This is the very first time that we have that happen in the entire Bible, this 10%. So right here, you see the Bible foreshadowing, though we don't have these Levites being priests yet, this guy is like the very first priest of priests that we see in this kind of light. And he worships Yahweh just like Abraham does. But another interesting thing, he's the king of Salem, which is short for something. Does anybody have any ideas? Jerusalem, right? King Melchizedek, who worships Yahweh of Jerusalem, well before we have a Jerusalem, well before we have a David of Jerusalem well before we have the established priesthood and all that. This is a strange story. And it's short. It's pretty much what Robbie just read. And then it's over. And so when when you come across weird stories like that that don't have a lot to go off of, you let your mind run with them and you start adding context to it to try to come up with some explanation as to what was going on here. Uh, Those of you who have heard of Melchizedek, have you heard of... Any explanations, any direction that people have taken it? I'm just curious. I've seen a lot, but it's all right. It's, like I said, we don't know much about him. In fact, the Bible still has very little to say about this priest king. Now, throughout the Bible... We used to have Adam and Eve who were these priest kings, priest queens, right? Because they were royalty of sorts. They were given power and authority and domain and dominion over the entire earth. That's royalty, right? But they were also priests. They went into sacred divine space where God dwelt. So they were kings, queens, and priests. Does anybody know where that gets split into two things? Because eventually we get into the Bible where you have kings... And then you have priests, and they are not the same thing anymore. Anybody got an idea where this splits? Guy's name starts with an M, ends with a noses. <laughs> Moses supposes his toes are roses, as Moses supposes his toes is to be. Alright, eventually we get to Moses. And Moses is told by God, you are going to lead my people out of slavery. And you are to be my mouthpiece. You are to uh, do what I do, say what I say, and perform the many things that I tell you to perform. What does Moses say? Can't do it. I don't talk very good. Uh, Yeah, like he's, you know, I want to choose someone who can speak a little better than me. And a lot of people have gone, well, maybe Moses had a stutter. Maybe Moses had ABCD. Like maybe he just wasn't a good public speaker. I don't know when the last time you read that story was, but Moses was just straight up belligerent. (laughs) Like, I I don't even know that he had a stutter. He just really did not want to do the job. He's running to this Yahweh who doesn't really know, who is saying, like, I'm the God of your ancestors. If he even really knows who his ancestors are, I I don't know. But Moses is like, okay, all right, I don't want to do it. Okay, but you're going to do it. No, I'm not gonna do it. Why don't you have someone else do it? No, but you're gonna do it. Well, how about I just do this part? You have someone else do this. Moses, like, Moses is so belligerent with God that at one point in the Moses story, <laughs> the Bible freaks you out and it says, and God's like pretty much decided, like his anger burned hot against Moses and he was ready to kill him. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, hold on, not Moses the holy man. No, this is Moses' start to the story, is he does not want to do this. He does not want to be the king, does not want to be the priest, does not want to be the king priest. And so the first, like, well, it's not the first, but a divine concession happens where God says, fine, I'm still going to work with you. You're still the one I've chosen you. This is not what I've called you to do. But since you made such a big deal out of this, we will split it. You can more or less operate in that king side of things where you're leading Israel, uh, in a like royal kind of authority type way, though he wouldn't have been called a, a king in, in that perspective. But your brother Aaron, he, he can do the speaking, okay? He can be the priest. Aaron is then going to give rise to his descendants who are the Levites, and the Levites are going to then be the priests for the rest of the Bible. Guess what? The Levites were horrible priests. Horrible. Like all the way to the bitter end, the Bible's constantly talking about how bad of a job the Levites do at their job. This was not God's plan to have the Levites do it. And it's almost like a punishment to Moses and all of Israel that the Levites are doing it now. If Moses would have just done his job, things would have gone better for him. Because you know what Moses does anyways? He goes to meet with God in sacred spaces just like the priest is supposed to do. But now he can't fully operate as the priest. Like, it's almost like a punishment. Like, you got your just desserts, Moses. This would have been easier for you. But now you've fractured what I called humanity into. You've fractured that into two lines. And so now your kings aren't always going to listen to the people who go into holy space. And the holy space people aren't always going to be interested in God. And the holy space people aren't always going to be able to convince the kings to follow God. And when your priests and your kings are on different pages, guess what happens? The whole thing just falls apart. And if you haven't read the Old Testament, do it. (laughs) You will see literally the story of everything falling apart for 600 pages over and over again. There's your your cliff notes synopsis right there. It's just constantly the Levites mess up. I mean, what's the first thing that Aaron does as a priest? Builds an idol. Builds a calf. And it may not even have been that he was trying to worship another god. He might have just been saying, well, where I come from, we always worship gods in statues I see Yahweh's up on that mountain with the thunder and lightning. And Moses went up there and maybe he died because it's been 40 days and he hasn't come back yet. (laughs) So maybe let's build a cow because, you know, that makes sense. And then let's see if we can shove God inside of that instead of up on that holy mountain. That's the way that the priesthood thinks. It's blasphemous. It's messed up. And this is the way that things are going to continue to be throughout the whole Old Testament. But then we get to Psalm 110. Now, we have this prophecy that Eve would have a descendant. There's hope. One day someone will put something right. More specifically, Abraham will carry that line of the descendant. More specifically, Jacob will carry that line of the descendant. And then finally, most specifically, anybody know where we eventually kind of land on who's the line of the descendant? David. David. King David will one day within his line from Jacob, from Abraham, from Eve, will one day give rise to a descendant who will then become a permanent holy king Who reigns over all the earth. And then everything will finally be just. Because he's a king who practiced justice perfectly. Everything will finally be right. Because he understands how to put the law into play correctly. One day David will have a descendant who is of royal blood. Because David is royal. And that king will be permanent and put things right. But what about the priest side of things? When will we have the reuniting of of the priests and the king become one role again? Is Jesus only going to be a king and not a priest? (laughs) That seems kind of weird. Is Jesus only going to be able to rule but never get close to God's presence? Like, is that what we're left with? This is where we have the only, almost other, only the second time where Melchizedek's name shows up. Psalm 110. Uh. Psalm 110. Looking for the name Melchizedek. Alright, who would like to read Psalm 110, verses 2-4? to 4? Two verses. Anybody? The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Roll in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Can you read that one too? Yep, one more verse. Okay. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of um, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. You're welcome. So, this psalm right here, often when David was writing music, the Holy Spirit would come upon him. Or, uh, yeah, in this case, the Psalm of David. Holy Spirit would come upon him. And he would start prophesying in his music. This is all the more reason why worship music is important. Sometimes we encounter the divine right in the midst of creative, uh, uh, creative uh, writing. And here David is talking about a king, right? The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Scepter is something a king carries. So here, Psalm 110, there's going to be a king. But furthermore, he's not just a king. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's the order of priests that they're used to? The Levites. Aaron's children, right? They're the ones who are allowed to get close to divine space. And all us other humans, we're not allowed to go that close because we might fry or something. (laughs) Fire from heaven might come down and burn us alive, right? But but, the Levites can get close. But now this this king who will one day rule with justice and righteousness and put everything right. Now David prophesies that he won't just be a king. He will be a priest as well. That had to mess with people's minds at the time because they always thought of like kings and priests are two separate jobs. Except for David. David was the the most priest-like king there ever was. And God allowed that to him for uh, for his uh, desire to chase after God. But for the most part, priests and kings were two separate avenues. And now David is going to be of the line of Judah. And so that means his descendant, who's a king, will have to be of the line of Judah. How can that Judaic king also be a Levite? Well, here David prophesies that he won't be that Judaic king will be after the order of Melchizedek. That's very interesting. God basically just says, you know what, it doesn't even matter uh, that uh, uh, I've allotted all this stuff to Levites. You want to know why? Because there's a greater priest than the Levites. There was this other priest that I, I used to have before the Levites. He was the king of Jerusalem And his name was Melchizedek. And so Jesus, though he may be of the Judaic royal bloodline, Jesus does not need to be a Levite. He can just be established under Melchizedek. Now, that all sounds interesting, but here is where people's minds start going crazy, right? Because now, everybody's thinking, okay, the Messiah, one day when he shows up, he will be a king and a priest, and he's connected to Melchizedek, that guy in the Old Testament that we know almost nothing about. And so people started making up stories about what Melchizedek was about. And eventually, if you look at Jewish literature between the Old and New Testament, some people thought that Melchizedek was a divine being, that he was an angel of sorts, that he wasn't even a human that the king of Jerusalem that worshipped Yahweh was actually like a angel or some kind of being from the heavens. Others would say all different kinds of things, but they just go crazy with their understanding of who Melchizedek is. And then we see a little piece of this craziness burst through in Hebrews 6. I'll read this one, but open to Hebrews 6. This is a strange passage. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope. That's what tonight's about. A hope. The hope of that descendant of Eve, of Abraham, of Jacob, of David we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's what priests do. They go into a sacred, sacred space where you only went once a year because that's how sacred it was. And you better hope that you didn't have any sin that you hadn't atoned for because if you walked in there with sin, you might die. Like That's how sacred this space is. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying, we have an anchor of the soul, a hope... That enters into the inner place behind that curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has skipped over the Levites who never did their job right and just went straight to Melchizedek. And becomes established not just as a priest who will one day die and then a new priest will rise up. But a priest who lives forever. Who is immortal. Who has a resurrection body. Who cannot die. And therefore his body which was broken for you so that you might live. So that you might be forgiven of your sins. All the former sacrifice that priests made. Those priests would die. Those sacrifices would die. They wouldn't cover it and new priests had to rise up within the line. But Jesus will never die. He's the perfect sacrifice, and He has walked into that sacred space where the sacrifice goes. He has put His own blood in that sacred space. And now He's looked out to all of us and welcomed us in there as well. When Jesus died, there was something that happened. Does anybody remember? There were several things that happened, but one in line with this. Anybody remember? Yeah. The curtain that used to hold back this super sacred place, it's torn in two. Impossibly, From top to bottom, very thick curtain that you could not rip if you tried. Ripped right in half, as though Jesus was ushering into the entire planet, the installment of heaven invading everything. No longer just caught in Eden, no longer just caught behind a curtain, but the Holy Spirit breaking out of that room, filling any who will follow him, and then putting us back on track to, to bring heaven to Jackson, to bring heaven to the earth, to turn all of the earth into Eden. The sacred space, Jesus has walked in there, ripped the curtain open, and allowed all to now enter into that sacred space. And that's, that's why I, I don't like to use the word priest, and I don't like the way that we think of the word of pastor either. Because we usually think like this is someone who goes to sacred space and brings it to me. That's not my job. That's one of the things I do. But that's not a priest's job. That's not a pastor's job. Because you are what? A A royal priesthood. The Bible calls you a royal priesthood. Just like Adam and Eve, who reigned, who had dominion, who had authority, who had kingship and queenship. And we're able to walk in divine space where only select people could go throughout history. Jesus has become a royal priest and because you are a brother of Jesus, a sister of Jesus, you now too are royal priests who enter into sacred space where others are not allowed to go. Who usher in sacred space wherever you go. Who intercede on behalf of others who are afraid to go by sacred space. You are the royal priesthood, not the pastor not the priest. You have the same ability to connect with the Spirit and get close to Him as I do. And that's why the church works as a body. Because we all work together to usher in heaven into this room, to usher in heaven into into Jackson. Alright, this is where it gets weird. We'll wrap it up. Hebrews continues, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. We've read all that. We know that story. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. He is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Peace and righteousness. Those are big buzzwords for the Messiah. So, of course, these get attributed to Jesus. And I lost my spot. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What the heck just happened? (laughs) Right there, in that moment. Melchizedek, who we know very little about, he had no father, he had no mother. He has no genealogy. He is without beginning and end. <laughs> Anybody want to take a stab at that one? What's Hebrews getting at here? What well, if it's more like symbolic of his priesthood? Okay, so like in what way? Because it says he, he basically has no beginning or end. Is it saying that the priesthood has no beginning or end? Okay, so that might be one way we might read into this. Anybody else got other proposals? that Melchizedek like yeah the way that is described like sounds almost like he's eternal like God that'd be another way some people I mean we already said that some of the Jews between the Old and New Testament certainly went this direction of this seems to be like an immortal being not not a human so we've got symbolism we've got divinity what else do we got anything is there any other ways to read this Melchizedek didn't do anything bad, no. It's a strange passage. It's bound to happen. There have been like entire books written on this one guy and all of the material there is to say about him I just addressed. So you can understand why there's a lot of conjecture here. <laughs> yeah, like he was a... Yeah, like he wasn't a human. It's kind of how that sounds right there, yeah in Jewish family, like he wasn't a descendant of Abraham, so like if, as far as they are concerned, they have no record of him, so like that puts the imagery of uh, no origin, like we don't know anything about him, but, you know. So it's funny you should say that, within uh, old rabbinic teaching, there were a few kinds of preaching exercises you could do One of the exercises was If the Bible didn't not say it, (laughs) you can say what you want. And so some people look at this passage and just think that um, the author of Hebrews is like, well, the Bible didn't say that Melchizedek wasn't immortal. (laughs) And so I can say that. So it could be a rabbinic teaching kind of in that direction. I don't think that's entirely what you were saying, but there's some of that conjecture. Any other final thoughts? Al? Well, I think... If you go back, and everybody's a descendant of Adam and Eve, mm. who were priests and kings, mm. so therefore, Melchizedek comes from that royal line, whether we whether acknowledge it or not, in one way, shape, or form. And God is looking for all people who will worship in the spirit and the truth. And so if he was doing that in his day, it was not a God. I mean, in the New Testament, they talk about people preaching Christ and sharing the message, but will not be in heaven because they have no relation even though the community is the true. So if that is true, why couldn't the other be true as well where people who are trying to do it but aren't really sure what they're doing are doing pro- appropriately and therefore will be in heaven? And by the way, we're all immortal. It's either heaven or hell, but we live forever. Hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, um, it's kind of in C.S. Lewis's uh, End of Narnia goes this route of like These people who are worshiping God who didn't know it, you know. Only God in the end is the judge of us, right? But but yeah, so there's some other thoughts. I'll give you two basic directions you can go. Because again, we don't know what to do with this. But you've already said it. On one side of things, there is the divine being. I know this sounds weird, but it is not that uncommon in Abraham's life for him to run into divine beings, <laughs> he runs into God at a tree like four times. He meets the angels who just go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he, he learns what God looks like. Like if I run into Katie at the grocery store, I'm gonna Katie, Abraham literally does that. Oh, Yahweh, Hey, good to see you. You want to stop by and get some grub? Like that's a literal conversation Abraham has. So it is, and Jacob sees angels in a dream kind of going up and down ladders. It is not that weird in the book of Genesis to just happen to stumble across a divine being of heaven. Not that weird. So you could go that route given how strangely this is written later on. right? The other route that is not quite as fun, but is probably maybe even the correct route. It's kind of what Sarah was doing with symbolism, right? Is uh, um, actually this is a combination of what the three of you said. Symbolic. So yes, Melchizedek is a priest, but he's not a priest from the Levite line, proving to us that God never needed the Levites to specifically be the priests. And if he wanted to have someone else do it from a different line, he could always do that because he had that before the Levites even existed. Right? So it could be that Melchizedek has no father or mother that we should mention because they weren't Levites. He has no genealogy that should have made him a priest and yet Melchizedek was a priest nonetheless. And if that's what the author of Hebrews was trying to say, I would just like to say he could have said it better than that. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite as fun as running into a divine being, which also is something people believe, so it could have been that route. But one of those two is probably the best to go on. The reason I get into all of this is as we focus on the candle of hope and we think of Advent tonight, Like this is the hope of hopes right here. We just went hope before Jesus, right? All the way at the very beginning, we mess everything up, but we're told someone's going to come fix it. Then we get to to the hope of one day a, a, a king priest will rise up who will be able to fix it because he's a king who reigns and does things perfectly and can't die. But he's also a priest who goes into God's sacred space and meets with God and reigns as God would have him, and he can't die. And the story of Christmas is in part the fact that the immortal, resurrected king priest who makes the perfect sacrifice so that we might live forever, was born not in a nice little rocking cradle, but in what? A feeding trough. Of course, right from the very beginning of the Christmas story, the Bible's trying to tell you, here's Jesus. He's the perfect sacrifice. Just as uh, just as the Levites would take of some of the meat of sacrifices and eat it. So here is Jesus, the perfect sacrifice given to you. And you too will eat of his body, his bread, his blood, his wine. And in doing so, you will take on the resurrected life as brothers and sisters of Jesus to go and live on immortally with him forevermore. He is the royal priest and you uh, by relation to Jesus are the royal priesthood. Now, that's a huge theme that hardly fits into 30 minutes. But I give that to you as, as a start of your Christmas story. Do you feel hopeless? Does it feel like everything's crashing around you? Do you feel like you, you're just waiting to like either get to church so you can meet with God? Or you got to put on that perfect worship album to meet with God? Or you, you got to do A, B, C, D to get to God's presence? The good news is you already have access to it right now because the royal king has made you a royal priesthood. The royal priest has made you a royal priesthood. And so starting tonight, as you dream, enter into God's presence. As you wake, enter into God's presence. As you live, enter into God's presence. As you ask God what you are to do throughout your day, enter into God's presence and watch Eden come through, break through, as that is where we are headed, to a resurrected earth where all things are put right by the royal priest who was born on Christmas Day. So Jesus, we thank you uh, that though you are God and uh, full of power, full of righteousness, full of of perfection, you would humble yourself not just to be born of, of crummy human flesh, but to also be born in a feeding trough. where you would be put on display for the whole world to see, and though angels would celebrate you in the night, though uh, uh, wise men would come and worship you, all of that at the same time would find itself with the threat of becoming a refugee and having to flee the country. You brought yourself that low to the bottom of the bottom, but in doing so you exalted yourself to the highest place, to be the royal priest and you intercede on our behalf. You go to the Father for us. You are the perfect sacrifice for us. And we have access to the Father because of you. We thank you for that. May Christmas come to us in a new way as our lives begin to turn towards hope. In Jesus' name, amen. On your way out, please take whatever food you would like. The rest we will have to freeze, and I don't know when it would come out again, so I would prefer that it go to good use. Take what you can. We'll catch you guys soon.